that will uh, leave them without any obstruction and that makes for better plants. So get rid of the stuff you don't want and the result is better soil and better plants. Well, I was thinking about that as I was thinking about God's election this week. God's election of Israel is a lot like a sifting process. And when I say election, let's just be clear what we're all talking about here. I'm talking about God's sovereign choice since before the foundation of the world, uh, through his foreknowledge, predestination, calling, uh, justification uh, of us, and glorification of everyone who will be saved. And so as we go through this today, what we're going to see is that God has not elected the entire nation of Israel to salvation. God has used a sifting process to determine uh, all Israel, uh, who is going to be included in, in the saved. So he goes from all Israel, or from, I'm sorry, from national Israel, all Israel, down to uh, believing Israel, God's elect within Israel. And he uses this sifting process to do it. So if we were to look at the genealogy of Abraham, we see that, that God started the nation of Israel with Abraham, uh, but he whittled it down. He, he sifted it down from there. Uh, he started with Abraham and the descendants of, of Abraham, but then there's a sifting process between Isaac and Ishmael. It's not Ishmael. It's not the line of Ishmael that is saved. It's the line of Isaac that is going to be saved. Uh, so the children of the promise are the children born through Isaac. But then there's even a further sifting process where it's not all the children of Isaac. In fact, there is Jacob and Esau, and he sifts out Esau, and we're left with the descendants of Jacob, who then are God's elect. Now, of course, uh, God's uh, election is much more nuanced than this, right? It's, it's not that everyone who is descended from Jacob is saved. And it's not that you can't be saved if you're not born a descendant of Jacob. Uh, that's not it. Uh, but what we see is that uh, here th there is a sifting process that goes on. And what we're going to learn today is that it's not being physically descended uh, from Israel, from Isaac, from Jacob that makes you saved. It's being a spiritual descendant of Abraham that makes you saved. So what we're talking about here is because Paul is anticipating the question. Remember, uh, he's just preached these incredible verses, verses 31 to 39, just guaranteeing uh, that God's elect can never uh, not be saved, right? Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. And so what Paul is doing here is that he's anticipating the questions that somebody would ask. And what somebody would ask is, well, wait a minute, if you're saying that all God's elect are saved and nothing can ever separate them from God's love, well, what about the Jews? And that's a big problem, right? What about the Jews? Not all the Jews are saved, and we're told that the Jews are God's chosen people. So how can it be that not all God's chosen people are saved? And so this is what uh, Paul is dealing with. He's anticipating this question, and in verse 6 he says it's not as though the promises have failed, because that's the question that they would be asking. Have God's promises failed, since not all of Israel will be saved? And if nothing can separate the called of God, well, why are the Jews not saved? And, and why are they cut off from his love? And most importantly, to a Christian reader like ourselves, could that happen to us, believers in Christ? Could something happen that would separate us from God's love? And, and Paul answered these questions in Romans chapter 9. And so I'm sure you caught the principle as uh, the passage was read to us this morning, but the principle is that not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, not all Israel will be saved. There are 
There are two Israels, and this is what we need to get. There is a physical Israel on the one hand, all who are the physical descendants of Abraham. And then there is a spiritual Israel. Those are the spiritual children of Abraham, those who have the faith of Abraham, and those are the ones who are saved. So uh, it's the spiritual Israel. And then Paul used two illustrations to, to nail down this point, uh, to prove that it's not one's heritage and it's not one's merit that achieves salvation. It's God's choice in election. And so we're going to see that as we look at uh, these two stories of Isaac and Ishmael and then Jacob and Esau. So we've talked about this already when we were in the end of chapter 8, Romans 8.29, Romans 8.30. Uh, salvation is a two-sided coin, right? We've talked about that. Uh, God is sovereign in election. God chooses who is saved. Uh, that's God's role in salvation. He chooses. He elects his, his saved. And we talked about that through the foreknowledge, the predestination, the calling, the justification, the glorification. Uh, we've been over that. And then there's another side of the coin to salvation. It's a two-sided coin. On the other side of the coin is our faith. And so the common thread that runs through each person who has not been sifted out is that they are among God's elect and they have believed, they have appropriated this gospel through faith. So we each have to exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ if we're going to be saved. And if we do that, it's because we are God's elect. And so we're going to talk more about the human side of salvation, about our decision uh, in chapter 10. But chapter 9... Romans chapter 9 is more about God's sovereignty, and so we'll spend more time uh, talking about that in, uh, in this sermon and in the sermons to come in chapter 9. So let's just go back a bit now, and, and let's revisit the problem that Paul is addressing here. Remember uh, last time we were together, two weeks ago, in verses 1 to 5, we were looking at this problem that Paul addressed, and Paul said, he loved the Israelites, his fellow countrymen, his Jews. He loved them so much that he would be willing to trade his own salvation if they might be saved. Now that is deep love. Uh, and this is Paul who had been rejected by them, who had been beaten by them. They tried to kill him over and over again, and yet he loved his countrymen this much. And I think that the only way that we can understand this is to just imagine the love that we have for our own children. Like, I'm sure each and every one of us would say, I would gladly trade my own salvation if it was necessary or possible uh, for the salvation of my children if they were not saved. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's, that's how Paul was looking at, at this. He loved his countrymen this much that he would be able or willing to trade his salvation if he could. So Paul loved the Jews. He loved his countrymen. And we saw also that God loved them too. That's why God gave them all of the privileges that God gave them that we talked about last time. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the glory, the covenants, the law, uh, the temple worship, the promises, and the fathers through whom Jesus came. So the Jews just about had salvation handed to them on a silver platter. God gave them advantages well beyond what the Gentiles got. The Gentiles got none of these advantages. The Jews got them all. And yet, many Jews did not believe. And that's the problem. God promised Abraham land, and he promised uh, Abraham descendants. Uh, and yet, these descendants, many of the physical descendants of Abraham, were not saved. So the obvious question is, have God's promises failed? And so that's what Paul is addressing here. Uh, Paul went as far as to say in, in chapter 9, verse 3, that the Jews were accursed. How could God's people, uh, who he gave all these privileges to, be accursed? 
Uh, how could these unsaved Jews not be among God's elect? And so uh, this is the problem that Paul is dealing with. And this would be confusing to Jews for sure uh, because the Jews relied on their ancestry, right? They relied on their heritage. They relied on the fact that they were children of Abraham to say that they were saved. And they also relied on keeping the law. So what do you see there? You see heritage, right? We're from Abraham, and we see keeping the law, our works, our merit. And both of those things are not what we rely on for our salvation. And that's what Paul is teaching in this passage. It's not ancestry. It's not personal merit that gains salvation. It's God's election that secures salvation. So that's the problem from the Jewish side. Now, from the Gentile side, how can they ever be sure if they are Christ's elect, if it, God's elect, if in fact the Jews weren't sure? If the Jews weren't saved, how could the Gentiles ever know for sure that they were saved? And so that's a big question. And we, of course, 2,000 years later, as Gentile believers, we might ask the same question. How can we be sure that we can never lose our salvation? If the Jews were not sure, how could we ever be sure? And so that's why we need to understand this principle that Paul articulated in verses 6 to 8. He said, it is not as though the word of God has failed. So that's the answer to the question. Has the word of God failed? No, the word of God has not failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So again, God promised his blessing to Abraham and his descendants, but many of Abraham's descendants have not been saved. So have God's promises failed? Obviously, the answer is no. God's promises have not failed. So what is the answer? What is the response? Here is the main takeaway from the sermon today, the thing that we have to take away if we're going to understand, is that it is not the physical descendants of Abraham who are saved necessarily, but only the spiritual descendants who are saved. And so to say it even more clearly, it's not our heritage, it's not our merit that saves us, it's God's election that saves us, and we secure God's election through faith. And that faith itself is a gift from God, given by his sovereign choice before we were even born. Yes, we must believe, we have to believe, faith is an essential component of our salvation, but we will not believe unless God does something in us first so that we will see our need, repent of our sin, and receive Jesus as our Savior. So that's the principle. It's not the physical descendants, but the, physical dis uh, uh, but the spiritual descendants who are saved. It's not merit. It's not heritage. It is God's election secured by faith. So let's talk about how Paul lays out this principle in these verses. The word of God has not failed. And we remember, of course, that, that God's promises can be trusted. And Abraham learned that God's promises can be trusted, even though he had to wait a long time to receive them. Remember, in Genesis chapter 12, uh, God said to Abraham, I will give you land, I will give you seed more numerous than the sand on the seashore, and I will give you blessings, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. That's in Genesis chapter 12. But it's not until Genesis 15 verse 6 where it says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that's when Abraham was saved, when he believed the combination of God's election and Abraham's faith that secured Abraham's salvation. So what we see is that salvation is not 
in the land. It's not in the seed. It's not in the blessings. Salvation comes by faith, which is given by God because of his election. It's not Abraham's heritage. It's not his works that saves, but it's the faith of Abraham that saves. So a person doesn't have to be a physical descendant. He has to be a spiritual descendant of Abraham. We have to have the faith of Abraham to be saved. And, and that's what Paul meant when he said that not all Israel are descended from Israel. Uh, Paul is, is talking about two separate Israels. He's, he's using uh, literal language and figurative language in the same verse. So uh, the first Israel is the physical Israel, right? The physical Israel, the descendants of Abraham. But we know that not all of them are saved. So there's a second, there's a subset, a spiritual Israel. And most of Israel is not uh, spiritual Israel. Most of them are descended from Abraham. They're physical descendants, but they don't have faith. And so uh, Paul used these two illustrations to talk about, prove, or about how he's going to prove his point. God chose Isaac over Ishmael, and he chose Jacob over Esau. And so these illustrations uh, that we're going to talk about here, this is like Hebrew history 101 to these people. Everybody knew these stories. This is Sunday school flannel graph material, right? Everybody knew these stories. And so we talk about then Ishmael and, eight, uh, and uh, Isaac in verses 8 and 9. Uh, again, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. All right, so we all know the story. This is the Abraham and Sarah story. God promised Abraham children, too numerous to mention, as many as the sand on the seashore, as far as the eye can see. Uh, but the problem was that uh, he made that promise in Genesis chapter 12, 10 years had passed, and uh, Sarah was still barren, still there were no children, and they were getting past the age where they thought it was possible to bear children anymore. Can you imagine being in your 70s and even holding out hope that you might have children anymore again? And that's where Abraham and, and Sarah found themselves. Uh, but since it wasn't happening, uh, they got impatient. Uh, and they thought, well, maybe we can think of a plan to help God along here a little bit. So uh, Sarah gives uh, Abraham his maid, Hagar, and says, you go into Hagar and you have a child through Hagar, and that will be our descendant. And that, that was the custom of the day. Uh, Hagar was, was uh, Sarah's maid, and uh, therefore if, if uh, Hagar had that child, the custom of the day, would that, it would be considered a child of the house of Abraham. And so uh, Abraham unfortunately thought that that was a good idea too, uh, and went into Hagar, uh, and they had this child together. Now, uh, that child was born, and, and Ishmael was the child, and, and Abraham hoped and prayed that this would be the child of the promise. Uh, Abraham begged God that Ishmael would be the child of the promise, but God said, no, Ishmael is not the child of the promise. This is the child of the flesh. Sarah is going to bear her own son, and that is going to be the child of the promise. Now, after that, they waited 13 more years. Can you imagine? Uh, in their, now Abraham, 99 years old, 
Uh, Sarah, 89 years old, uh, and still this promise is not fulfilled. But in Genesis 18, uh, God comes to Abraham uh, through messengers and says, uh, at this time next year, Sarah will have a son. And this is the child of the promise. And Sarah overheard uh, this promise being made to messengers that God had sent to Abraham. And she laughed. She thought it was funny uh, that she would have a child at this advanced age. But the very next year, just as God promised, Isaac was born. And so uh, that's the story, and here's what I want us to see. It's that God had chosen Isaac uh, as the child of the promise before he was even born, and even though Ishmael was the physical descendant of Abraham. And so God sifted the descendants of uh, Abraham. The promise was not through Ishmael, the child of the flesh. The promise was through Isaac. He is the child of the promise. And that choice had nothing to do with anything in Isaac whatsoever, right? How could it? It was made before Isaac was even born. Uh, And it didn't have anything to do with his ancestry either because Ishmael was a descendant of Abraham, but he is not the child of the promise. So God chose Isaac simply because he is sovereign in election. And so that's what we need to see. Now, for the Jews who are reading Romans, they surely knew this story, right? This is, like I said, Hebrew history 101, but maybe they didn't recognize the principle that election is not based on ancestry. It's not based on heritage. It's not based on who your parents are. You're not a Christian, brothers and sisters, because your parents are, right? You have to be, you have to appropriate faith for yourself. It's said that God has no grandchildren. Do you know what that means? Uh, God only has his own children. We are not God's children simply because our parents are God's children. So election is based on God's decision. And even though both Ishmael and Isaac were descendants of Abraham, only Isaac was the child of the promise. Now, we think about that, uh, and, and we have to, it draws my attention immediately to, to some of the teaching that we see in the New Testament uh, from no less of a prophet than John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist teaching uh, in Luke chapter 3. The people were coming out to John to be baptized uh, in the river. And the the Jews came and they were sent by uh, the Pharisees and they were questioning John's authority to baptize. And, And here's what John said to them. He said, you offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He just delivers it, doesn't he? He just gives it to them. Uh, And therefore, he says, produce fruits that are consistent with repentance and do not start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children for Abraham. So what is the message? being, Abra- being children of Abraham, at least physically, is not a very big deal, right? God can raise up children uh, from these stones as children of Abraham. Uh, so being a descendant of Abraham is not a guarantee of salvation. God's chosen people are those with the faith of Abraham, and those are God's elect. So that's John the Baptist. Remember, Jesus made the same point when he was arguing with the Pharisees in John chapter 8. The the Pharisees confronted Jesus about his identity, and the Pharisees claimed to be children of Abraham, and they said that uh, they they were questioning Jesus' heredity, which they thought to be sketchy because they didn't know where he came from. And Jesus said that if they were children of Abraham, meaning the spiritual children of Abraham, then they would do the deeds of Abraham. But as it was, they were trying to kill him, even though he told them the truth. 
And now listen to the things that make someone a true child of Abraham. Here's what Jesus said to them. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came forth from God and am here, for I have not even come on my own, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. So what do we see here? There are a bunch of reasons why these Pharisees are not children of Abraham. Look at the reasons. The first reason, they did not love Jesus, verse 42. They could not listen to his word, verse 43. They are of their father, the devil, verse 44. And they want to do the desires of their father, the devil. Now, these are Pharisees. These are descendants of Abraham, right? And all these things are true of the Pharisees, even though they are physical descendants of Abraham. So the point is clear. Physical heredity from Abraham is not what saves. It's the faith of Abraham that saves. And so the children of Abraham are not his physical children, but his spiritual children. And that's those who believe, and those who believe are those who God has elected. And he did that before we were even born. God imputes his own righteousness uh, to every spiritual descendant of Abraham. He gives us his righteousness, which is what we need to get into heaven. He chooses, and at the same time, we must believe. And so that's the two-sided coin of salvation. So that's the example of Isaac and Ishmael. Now, there's a second Uh, example that Paul gives here. And again, we see uh, it's not physical heredity, and certainly it has nothing to do with anything that that we do, our works that uh, will benefit to our salvation. Verses 10 to 13. And not only that, but there was also Rebecca. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. So we saw an initial sifting. There was a sifting between Isaac and Ishmael. And here's a second sifting between the two sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. Now, these two were both born to the same mother, right? These were both children of Rebekah, whereas in, the, uh, in Isaac and Ishmael, one was born to Sarah, the other was born to Hagar. So we might expect now that since uh, they're born to the same mother and from the same father, this, the, this child Isaac, surely both are elect, right? Both are going to receive the blessing. Uh, but that's not how God planned it out. And we see how this played out as these two lived their lives. Esau was the firstborn. Uh, He was entitled to all the natural blessings according to the custom. But Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Do you remember that? He was so hungry that that he gave up. He sold his birthright to Jacob for that stew. And what do we know about Jacob? Uh, Not a great guy, right? He was a swindler. He was a liar. He was a trickster. uh, And and he was always doing things that were not quite God's way. And yet God still reversed the custom. He, He gave the blessing to the younger child, just like with Isaac and Ishmael. He gave the blessing to the younger child, gave it to Jacob instead of to Esau. 
And we see in these verses that it was not based on anything they had done, right? For though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad so that God's purpose in election might stand. So we see that heredity is no guarantee of salvation and certainly nothing that we do could merit salvation because the twins were not even born yet. While they're still in the womb, before they had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob. Because he was a great guy? No, he was not a great guy. He was not a great guy at all, but so that God's purpose in election might stand. And what is God's purpose in election? God's purpose in election is that his will be accomplished. And his will was that Jacob be saved based on God's choice, not based on our works, but on God who calls. And that's why he said to Rebekah in Genesis chapter 25, uh, two nations are in your womb and two people will be separated from your body. And the people of the one will be stronger than the people of the other and the older shall serve the younger. So we have two nations in the womb. We have the people of Esau who became the Edomites and we have the, the nation of Jacob which became Israel and Esau's descendants did serve uh, the descendants of Israel. And so God reversed the custom and he chose uh, Jacob and Israel. And he quoted this, uh, this last verse here is directly from our passage here in Romans chapter 9. So uh, what we see then is that election is God's sovereign choice before we were even born. And then he finished with this, with this quote, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. That's tough, right? That is some, some difficult language there. What does this mean? Does this mean that God actually hated Esau? Does God hate people? Well, no, God doesn't hate people. God causes his son and his reign to, to fall on the believer and the unbeliever alike. Uh, and so what this means is it's simply a Hebrew figure of speech that, that describes preference. Uh, God chose Jacob over Esau. Uh, that's why the language uh, uh, Jacob he loved, Esau he hated, it only indicates preference. And we know that Jesus used this same language when he was talking about uh, the faith that is required to be a disciple of Jesus. Do you remember this passage in Luke chapter 14? He says, if anyone comes to me and does, uh, does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So is Jesus calling us to hate our parents, to hate our children, to hate even ourselves? No, of course not. Uh, again, uh, what it means is that compared to your love for Jesus, uh, the love that you have for these others so pales in comparison that it looks like hate because your love for Jesus is so much greater. And so it's a Hebrew figure of speech just indicating preference. Now understand, that Jesus died on the cross to save all of mankind from its sins. Salvation is offered to everyone. So Jesus died for all, but not all will be saved, right? Only the elect will come. And this is the paradox of salvation. God is sovereign, and yet we have a choice. And what we should never think is that salvation has anything to do with us. It clearly does not. This is the whole point of the passage today. If, if we think that because we were born into a Christian family uh, th that, that we are saved, we are sadly, and not only sadly, but eternally mistaken. Our heritage has nothing to do with our salvation. It's the spiritual descendants, not the physical descendants of Abraham who are saved. 
And if we think that, a, that our salvation has anything to, to do with what we've done, our good works, well, we don't understand salvation. God's salvation is his choice of us before we were born or had done anything good or bad. Now, at this point, you might say, well, what about my faith? Uh, isn't my faith a work? Don't I get credit for that? No, faith is not a work. You do not get credit for that. Faith is your response to what God has already done in you. Uh, he has regenerated you. He has regenerated all of us so that we can respond in faith where the Pharisees could not. So God regenerates our dead spirits. We hear the gospel and we believe. So faith is not a work. It's a response to God's work in us, and we get no credit for it because we would never have done it if God hadn't worked in our hearts first so that we could respond. So why does God choose some and not others? Well, we don't know. That's part of the secret mystery of God. It's part of the things that uh, Deuteronomy talks about where it says the secret things belong to the Lord. But from our perspective, all we need to know is this, uh, that if we believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, we are among God's elect and everyone is invited to come. So come, believe the gospel and be among God's elect. Now, I'm going to assume that all of us in here are believers and therefore that we are all elect. That may not be true. If it's not true for you, I pray that you would think on this real hard about what Jesus did on the cross for you. Uh, but I'm going to assume that you're all believers here, and what I want is for us to do a pride checkup. You know, we all need to do a little spiritual inventory now and then, because uh, sometimes we can forget that it's by grace that we've been saved, and it's not by works, uh, so that no one can boast. Sometimes we forget that. Uh, so how are we doing on our pride? Uh, we can all get to thinking, you know, I'm a pretty good person, and I think God's kind of lucky to have me in his camp, right? We can think that way sometimes if we get puffed up uh, with ourselves. Uh, we might even come from a background that teaches that, you know, good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, and I'm a good person, so, you know, I'm in the clear. Uh, if that's what we're thinking, then we're not understanding grace, and we're not understanding God's salvation. We are sinful people. And we could never earn God's salvation on our own. Uh, our sin bars us from heaven forever. But thankfully, God sent Jesus Christ to live a sinless life, to die on a cross for the sins that we committed. He took our penalty so that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' sacrifice. And he says, because you believe you are clothed in the blood, I give you my righteousness and you are saved. So we place our faith not in ourselves or our work for salvation, but in him alone. And that's the gospel, brothers and sisters. I know you believe that. Uh, if there's anyone here who doesn't, that's the gospel. Believe it and be saved. So our takeaways from today. God is sovereign in election. Salvation is based solely on God's choice before we were born, not based on our heredity, not based on our work, but solely on God's grace. So let's think about a few applications. We started out asking the questions, if our salvation is eternally secure, what about the Jews? If nothing can separate us from God's love, how did some of the Jews get separated from God's love? Why is his nation, his chosen nation, separated? And could the same thing happen to a believer? Has God's word failed? First application, God's word cannot fail. God's promises are always true. His word is true. The problem was that the Jews misunderstood God's promises. 
His promises were never to all Israel. They were to believing Israel. That's all who believe, regardless of heritage. They are the spiritual children of Abraham, and their salvation is eternally secure. So God's word has not failed. God's word cannot fail. God is truth. His integrity is on the line here. His character, his nature are all at stake. So God cannot break his promises or he would not be God anymore. He has broken no promises. All who God has chosen will come to him. And since that is true, don't rely on yourself to salvation, for salvation. If we're relying on ourselves for salvation, we are in big trouble. When God asks you, why should I let you in? If you begin the statement with, because I, and then list your resume, uh, that's going to end badly for you. Uh, that is not how, uh, how we get to heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus, remember, warned them, uh, look for the narrow road that leads to the narrow gate that leads to salvation that few will find. Avoid the broad road that leads to the broad gate that leads to hell that many will find. And that broad road includes trying to earn your salvation by good works or by comparing yourself to other people or by following some list of rules and regulations that you made up or, or relying on your baptism for salvation. None of these things saves. If that's the road we're on, well, we're on the broad road. And we don't understand that our sin separates us from God. And we don't understand our need for grace. And so those who want to earn salvation by works are going to be sifted out through God's sifting process. But all who trust in Jesus Christ by grace, through faith uh, alone for salvation, are going to enter heaven. And we need this grace because we cannot save ourselves. Only faith in the blood of Jesus Christ will save us. And we don't have to totally understand how salvation through God's election on the one hand and our faith uh, on the other hand work together. Uh, th those are in our finite minds. They're going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for us to ever reconcile. But what we do know is that God's word is true. And we know that if we believe we are among God's elect, and we also know that we need to share our faith because we need to preach the word to God's elect who are not yet saved and who are going to come to salvation through our preaching and our teaching of the word. Now, that's what I want to say about uh, verses 6 to 13. And probably the question in your mind is, well, that seems unfair. God chooses some and doesn't choose others. Isn't that unfair? And the only reason I'm talking about this now is because we're about to enter Advent, and it's going to be about six weeks before we get back to Romans, and I don't want you to be carrying that question, is God unfair for six weeks? So just let me give you the principle for what we're going to be talking about when we get back here after Christmas, and that principle is simply, well, what do you think? Is God unfair? No. God is not unfair. Uh, God was not required to save anyone. It's by his mercy that he chooses to save anyone. And it's when we impose our standards of what is fair on God that we might come up with skewed ideas of what fair is. Uh, but we think because God saved any, he's required to save all. And that is not how God's system of justice works. So we'll talk about that when we come next time. Uh, but I didn't want to leave you hanging and thinking for the next six weeks how unfair God must be. Uh, so I pray that you understand that. Uh, it's a tough sermon when we talk about election. Uh, these are difficult, difficult truths. And what we're talking about is the very deep waters of God. And we're just not going to be able to work it out in our own minds. So I just pray that we're all able
able to, to, to manage the tension between the fact that God does elect and yet we still have to believe. All we need to worry about, brothers and sisters, is believe, and you're among God's elect. All right, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for these words. Uh, Lord, my takeaway from this is that there's nothing I can do to earn salvation. And Lord, if, if uh, I needed to earn it, I would be in deep trouble. And so all I have left, Lord, is your grace. And I'm so thankful for it, Lord, and I know that we all are in this room because we could never, ever be saved if not for your grace. And so we thank you, Lord. We praise you. And as we consider now, as we are about to enter into the Christmas season, Lord, and we start thinking about uh, Advent, which means the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who became a man uh, to live a perfect life, to, to die on a cross for the sins that we committed, Lord, I pray that this would be a time where we prepare our hearts and just think about these amazing truths of what it is for God to humble himself, become a man, and die in our place. And Lord, I pray that we will live our lives with that same humility. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.